the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Please join Self and Society at Substack. Our guest today is Matt Zwolinski, professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego and the founder and director of USD's Center for Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy. Zwolinski is the co-editor of the Routledge Companion to Libertarianism, and he is the co-author with John Tomasi of the new book, The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. So this book pops on April 4th, so go ahead and pre-order your copy. I think we decided to release this podcast a little bit before the book comes out. So thanks a lot for coming on the show, Matt. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So I'm going to set the stage here by reading my inscription from my copy of this massive book, Man, Economy, and State by Mr. Libertarian Murray Rothbard. So wow. you can see by July 1994. So I looked this up. This would have been Murray Rothbard's last summer conference. To Ari, for man and economy and against the state. Best wishes, Murray Rothbard. Now, the date is somewhat significant because toward the end of his life, Murray Rothbard lent his name and credentials to Lou Rockwell's paleo-libertarian movement. And this is one of the things that you discuss in your book. So my first question is, are paleo-libertarians libertarian? And also this ties in to people in the know. Is the Libertarian Party still libertarian? Or have libertarian leaders become, in the words of the lawyer Ilya Soman, a bunch of right-wing nationalist Twitter edgelords? It's a great question. Uh, and it gets at the heart of an issue that John and I struggled with a great deal in writing this book, which is just what exactly is a libertarian? How do we draw the boundaries around this hotly contested concept. And I say hotly contested because there's almost nothing that libertarians like to argue about more than who is and who isn't a real libertarian. Um, and and this goes in both directions. Uh, there are libertarians today who argue that paleo-libertarians like the late Rothbard uh, and uh, Lou Rockwell and perhaps um, you know, the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party today aren't real libertarians because they've given up on some of the core commitments of what they take to be the core commitments of libertarian um, cosmopolitanism, a kind of openness uh, in terms of immigration policy, a broad attitude of tolerance towards uh, various forms of cultural deviation. Some people see those as uh, central to the libertarian framework, and so regard those who deviate from those ideals as, as non-libertarians in some ways. Uh, but uh, but I've gotten I've been on the other end of that uh, that argument as well. And some people have argued that I'm not a real libertarian because of my various apostases. Uh, I've uh, think that there's some room in a free society for uh, various forms of redistribution. I've talked about the basic income a lot in, uh, in some of my writings. Uh, some people view the entire bleeding heart libertarian movement that I, I helped to start uh, back in the 2010s uh, as not real libertarianism. Uh, so there's there are controversies about these issues um, that uh, in many ways I think are unresolvable. Uh, you know, libertarianism is not a natural kind of the sort that we can say with any you know, kind of definitive answer to, you know, who, who counts as a libertarian and who doesn't. 
Um, so the approach that we take in this book uh, is is to understand libertarianism in terms of a of a family resemblance. Uh, so it's not the kind of concept that we can define in terms of a neat set of necessary and sufficient conditions that are going to give you clear and precise answers to who's a real libertarian and who's not. Rather, libertarianism is defined in terms of a set of conceptual commitments. Um, and you could be sort of more paradigmatically or less paradigmatically libertarian, depending on how many of those commitments you adhere to, the strength of your commitments to uh, those different concepts. Um, but because of the number of different commitments and because of the, the openness, I think, of those different concepts, or there's a lot of different ways that libertarian commitments to, for instance, private property, um, skepticism of authority, a lot of different ways in which those can be interpreted. And so there are a great variety of different forms of libertarianism that can emerge even from a shared commitment to those concepts. And so my, my, that's a long way of getting to an answer to your question, which is, uh, yeah, I think paleo libertarians are libertarians. I think bleeding heart libertarians are libertarians. These are different interpretations of libertarianism. Um, but that's nothing new. Libertarianism has been a hotly contested uh, ideology from its very origins in the 19th century. And so the struggles that we see today to define what libertarianism is, um, that's not a departure from history. That's that's a continuation uh, of history. And you've planted a lot of the ideas that I want to talk about over the course of our podcast episode. Just to set the context for listeners, you named the six markers of libertarianism as a couple you mentioned, private property, and skepticism of authority, also free markets, spontaneous order, individualism, and negative liberty. So I'm sure we'll be talking about each of those as we go through. Even the private property, though, is somewhat contested in certain strands of libertarianism. But I wanted to go back quickly to the paleo-libertarians. To me, the so-called Mises caucus is a grotesque mistreatment of Ludwig von Mises' good name. I mean, this is the guy who wrote the book Liberalism, and it seems to me that the Mises Caucus is cons full of conspiracy mongers and Trumpist nationalists. So I think it's at least fair to say that Mises would not be comfortable with the, quote, Mises Caucus. Do you think that's accurate or fair? That seems to be probably correct. Uh, I mean, Ludwig von Mises is an interesting fellow. Uh, he... Uh, he did, as you say, write this book, Liberalism, which I think is is a beautiful book. Uh, it's it's my favorite book by Ludwig von Mises. Um, uh, I it's an incredible celebration of of a free society as an open, progressive, dynamic uh, society. Um, it's rooted in. I think an appreciation of freedom as a as a humane value, right? Uh, one that really serves is 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 to be celebrated insofar as it contributes to human flourishing. Um, and so, right, there's a, there's a direct connection between an appreciation for freedom and a um, a real concern for human well-being, human happiness, uh, the alleviation of poverty, uh, the, the, uh, the ability to 
create a space for human beings to find fulfillment that in some ways I think gets lost from a more kind of paradigmatic natural rights framework. Um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, right? Like if you think about if you think about libertarianism as being all about duty and respect for rights and these boundaries that one shall not cross, there's a there's a tendency, I think, to lose the connection between those rights and and the the human interests, the human well-being that those rights serve. Uh, that the libertarians believe, generally speaking, that those rights serve. And I, I think just one of the great things about that book is that that connection never gets lost for, for von Mises. It's it's always right there at the center. Um, so I love that book. Um, he was one of the more uh, dogmatic libertarians of the time, right? So there there's a sense in which uh, um, Mises what, had a kind of intolerance for um, intellectual disagreement that you didn't find in somebody like, uh, von, you know, Friedrich von Hayek, for instance, uh, or even, even Milton Friedman, uh, I think. Um, so there's a, he has this reputation and not entirely undeserved reputation of being kind of a hardliner. Um, for well, wasn't time. it at the Mount Pel Pelerin Society where he stood up and said, with Mises and Hayek present, you're all a bunch of damned socialists? I don't yes, know if he that's right. said damned, but... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it, this this uh, um, this comes from a, a recollection by Milton Friedman in his uh, his autobiography, um, <laughs> where he, Friedman says, "Look, like you're you're in a room full of people who are there precisely because they view socialism as a kind of existential threat to humanity, uh, and you view those people as having." conceded too much to socialists like you know where where are you going to find your allies if you can't find them here well you would certainly be on the outs i think yeah, yeah i mean I, I don't know that uh that mises would like me very much i don't know that i would like him very much either as a person um i think we would butt heads but uh but i do have a great appreciation for his scholarship and his ideas especially that book how would he stand on the on the ludwig von mises caucus yeah i think there's a kind of um there's a kind of populism and intolerance and a pandering to cultural conservatives. That's even putting it, I think, too gently, because I think there's a kind, I mean, when I say cultural conservatives, I. Well, let's be blunt. I tend to Those people rub elbows with neo-Nazis quite literally. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think there's anything conservative about Nazism or fascism. Um, right. These are these are radical ideologies of their own sort. Um, and so I think conservative is is too gentle and, and inappropriate a term for much of what's going on in the uh, in the caucus. It's it's authoritarianism. It's kind of authoritarian populism, uh, which you know we tend to put on the right side of the political spectrum when we're carving up the world. But um, it's certainly a far cry from conservatism and libertarianism at the same time. Um, right they're they're basing what they do on an interpretation of core libertarian concepts, right? So these are people who purport to be taking ideas of self-ownership and private property uh, very, very seriously. Um, and I think you can see how they get from point A to point B. Um, and it, they're not the first group in libertarian history to interpret those ideas in a way that 
leads to what I regard as a a fairly intolerant uh, and closed uh, and, and non-progressive worldview. Um, so I don't I don't think conceptually speaking we can write uh, these people outside of the libertarian movement, but I do think the name is as you indicate, kind of odd, right? I mean, I think it's it's not really the Mises Caucus. It's not really the Ludwig von Mises Institute anymore. It's the Murray Rothbard um, Institute and the Murray Rothbard concept or caucus or or maybe even the Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, caucus. Um, I mean, the, the the distance between Mises's ideas and and where they've gone with his namesake is, I think, uh, quite quite tremendous. Well, I just wish the people in the so-called Mises caucus would actually read the works of Mises. That would be a good start. But this goes to why if people ask me if I'm a libertarian, I'm not sure what to say. For a long time, I said no, which is partly my Ayn Rand influence. And partly I say no because I don't want to be packaged with those people. It's what what is that doing me? Even if I fit conceptually in those six markers of libertarianism, calling myself a libertarian at least in the popular mind, links me to a bunch of people that I don't wish to be linked to. So am I a libertarian? I I guess it, it'll it depend on who's asking and if I can say, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I think that's all, almost always the right answer. Um, I, I don't, even with myself, uh, people ask me if I'm a libertarian and um, it kind of depends who's asking and what the context is, what my answer to that question is going to be. Um, so uh, if I'm... Talking with academic philosophers, for instance, uh, which I spend a fair bit of time doing as an academic philosopher myself, um, I tend to say no to the question of whether I'm a libertarian, because that that phrase means something fairly specific within the context of academic philosophy. Um, libertarian for philosophers means something like a, a, a kind of neo-Lockean uh, or a Nozickian uh, who believes in Self-ownership is the kind of bedrock commitment. And then from self-ownership, we derive a strong kind of Lockean rights to private property through some process of labor mixing or homesteading or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then the from there, we derive the, the rest of the system from free markets to uh, limited government, all kind of flowing from this core commitment to self-ownership. But the whole structure of the system is a kind of natural rights or deontological moral framework um, that uh, combined with a sort of absolutism uh, about the 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 rights that are derived within that framework, that um, that I don't think matches my own my own moral worldview terribly well. Um, so no, I'm not a, I'm not a Nozickian. I'm not a I'm not a Lockean per se. Uh, and so if academic philosophers ask me if I'm a libertarian and that's what they mean, then the answer is no. On the other hand, if I meet somebody on the street and they ask me to describe my political views. I'll tend to say that I am a libertarian because I think in that context, it reasonably accurately characterizes my beliefs. I think government should be much, much smaller than it is currently. Uh, I think that it has no business doing a lot of the things that it does. I'm a strong supporter of free markets and individual responsibility uh, and tolerance. And for the average Joe on the street, those are the ideas that are conveyed by the term libertarian. And so in that context, I think that's a perfectly appropriate uh, characterization from my view. On Twitter, on Twitter, where, right, libertarianism tends to mean, right, the libertarians who are most 
active on Twitter, which tends to be people uh, who I, like you, would like to disassociate myself with, uh, again, I'd probably choose a different label for my view. So it's all it's all really heavily contextual. And that's just that's just the way language works. I mean, that's not nothing terribly special about libertarianism. Uh, language derives meaning from context. Um, and uh, that's that's more true of contested concepts like libertarianism than it is of you know, relatively uncontested concepts like table. Uh, but but even there, even in the concepts like table, uh, context matters in terms of defining what the, the limits of that concept are. I'm going to go kind of off script here because of some of the things you've raised. So it's going to be, I'm just going to kind of weave through some of these concepts as we go. Um, but you were talking about your views as opposed to Nozickian Lockean view. But yesterday I was reading your essay of a few years ago from the Independent the Independent Institute, yeah. which is available online, about the basic income. And in that essay, at least, you seemed very sympathetic with the Lockean view of property. And, and you were arguing that, well, if you really follow this view through to its logical conclusions, that would endorse something like maybe a basic income. So was that sort of a foil you're you're like assuming if this is true, it still leads to my conclusions or to what degree are you actually a Lockean in terms of your views of property rights? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm certainly sympathetic with a lot of the views uh, you know, developed by Locke in his his second treatise on on self-ownership, on private property. I don't know that I fully endorse these views, um, but I I see. I see the points he's making. I think there's some there's some insights there. So there's some value to what he's saying. Similarly, with the um, uh, the way in which those ideas are developed by Robert Nozick, I think there are, there are some genuine insights there um, that that anybody you know whether you identify yourself as a Lockean or a Nozickian or not, um, insights that anybody really ought to take on board. So it's it's not that I reject these ideas. Um, completely, but uh, but I I wouldn't go so far as to describe myself as a um, a true believer either, right? So so what's the basic Lockean idea, right? The basic Lockean idea is that um, individuals have this kind of special relationship to themselves, uh, to their own physical bodies, uh, that is distinct from the relationship that any other individual has towards their bodies, uh, and he describes that relationship as a kind of ownership or property, right? Um, which, bear in mind, at the time that Locke was writing meant something fairly different from uh, from the way we use that term today, right? Today, when we think about property, we think mostly about physical stuff, um, objects that, that we own and have this kind of legal claim over, like a property right in a house or a, a car. Um, in Locke's time and uh, in, in prior times and, and even up to the say the 18th you know mid 19th century um property described a kind of proper relationship right to say that something was was your property was to say that it was proper to you it was propertas right from the latin um so um to say that you know you you have a property in your body right means that you know the relationship up between you and your body is is one of propriety it's a proper relationship so you have a kind of claim over your body that that others that others don't, and and that seems absolutely right. Right, there is something um, something special about her relationship between self and one's body. I mean, if you want to bifurcate it in that way, I mean, 
a lot of people will deny the bifurcation beginning and say that you just, you are your body, right? It's not really two things that are being connected here. It's, it's one thing. Um, but either way, right. There's whether it's a relationship of identity or, or proper connection, uh, it's still something distinct and special that sets you apart from anybody else. So we start with that, right? You, there's something special about you and your body, um, that makes it such that, uh, it's proper for you to control your own behavior in a way that it's not proper for other people to control your behavior. Um, and that's, that's what we mean in a, in a large sense by, by pro a property, right? Like you have the right to control yourself in a way that others don't. You have a right to exclude other people from controlling you. Um, and, um, and from there, Locke says, you know, what follows, what follows? Well, I mean, if that's all you've got, then nothing much, right? Because if, you, if all you control is your body and you don't control anything outside your body, well, you can't really do anything. Um, you can't uh, eat apple. You can't pick an apple from a tree and eat the apple, right? Because we haven't said anything about who owns that apple. Uh, you can't even walk over to the apple tree because we haven't said anything about who owns the earth upon which you're trotting to get over to the apple tree. So if all you've got is your body, well, then you're just kind of stuck there, immobilized um, and unable to act in the world. Uh, so we need to say something about the relationship between oneself and the external world. And here's where Locke tells this story about well, um, you know, you own your labor as you know, the, the, the labor that your body produces is also yours in some special sense. Um, and if you mix that labor with the external world, if you pick a apple from the tree, or if you, you know, you kill a deer or you plant some yams in a field, um, then you've you've mixed this thing that you own with something that you didn't own, and that in some way extends your property out into the external world. Um, and so you acquire a property right in this stuff with which you have mixed your labor, uh, and that then becomes yours as well. Um, Here's where the story starts to get kind of problematic in, in some philosophical ways, right? I mean, this, so Locke presents this idea of labor mixing as a way of acquiring property rights, um, which sounds like it's a kind of metaphor, right? Like you're mixing your labor as though your labor is this tangible physical object that you're mixing with some other physical object. But of course, that's not exactly how the world works. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a question there about like what exactly labor mixing means. There's a question here about why labor mixing should entitle you to ownership uh, in external objects. Robert Nozick raises this great question, right? Like, like, look, if you take a can, can of tomato juice that you own and you dump it in the ocean, um, do we really want to say that you now own the ocean or do we just want to say you've lost your tomato juice because you've you know, thrown it away? Um, so there's questions about you know what labor mixing, whatever it is, is supposed to get you uh, once you've, you've acted upon it. Um, and then there's deeper philosophical questions of the sort that uh, people like Henry George would raise uh, in, the, in the 19th century about whether any kind of labor mixing is sufficient to get you a property right in external resources, uh, given that you never, you never make external objects, right? You're, you're always acting upon things that pre-exist your labor. Um, so if you if you till the field and plant some yams, 
Um, maybe, maybe you own the yams that you've produced, right? That wouldn't have existed had you not worked on the field in the way that you did. But do you own the soil? Right, the soil was there before you ever get soil was there before you ever came around. It would have existed whether you came around or not. So there's a real question there, according to George, of whether you can ever own what he called the land, right? Which I think he meant more generally to mean natural resources, uh, sort of unimproved natural resources in general. Uh, and so from there, you get this kind of Georgist, in a way, reformulation of Locke which says, yeah, you own yourself. Yeah, you own your labor. Yeah, you own things that you create purely with your labor, but natural resources like land are never the proper subject of ownership. Um, and so um, you know, when the state imposes a tax on those unimproved natural resources, uh, it is not violating any natural right of yours uh, because it's not taking away from you anything that you have a proper um, claim on. Uh, on on moral grounds, so so there's a lot of issues here uh, that I just raised, uh, and I never quite got to explaining you know my own particular view on this. But I'm I'm sympathetic with the George's critique. I'm sympathetic with um, you know a lot of the people who raise difficulties with the Lockean uh, story about how we acquire property rights and external resources. But at the same time, I'm also sympathetic to this Lockean idea that we do have this special relationship to our own bodies and to our own labor. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, the, the, the challenge is to, you know, combine all of those things in a way that leads you to a sensible view. Um, I think you could do that, but it doesn't, I don't think it gets you to anything like the kind of absolutist um, uh, libertarian position that some neo-Lockians like, you know, Nozick or Rothbard, for that matter, um, hope that it does. Or I would add Rand. I would say that she is pretty hardcore Lockean in that sense. I think that's and right. That she yeah. says she wants to privatize absolutely all property. Like there's no such thing as public property in Rand's ideal system, um, which I think, I think even Murray Rothbard would say that same thing, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, but there's a whole lot, there's a lot of issues that you raise there, but I'm convinced that the issue of property rights is sort of the central conundrum of libertarianism. And the big issue that people need to work out. And it's it's also the big thing that a lot of libertarians just kind of want to assume and move on. Like they assume existing property rights regime. Now let's talk about policies given that. And what you're trying to do, which I appreciate, is trying to dig beneath that and think about, well, is the existing property rights regime legitimate? How do we know that? If it's not, what do we do about that? These are not easy questions at all. So on the identity problem, I just want to go through some of these issues you raised in a little bit more detail. Yeah. So a lot of objectivists will say, well, it doesn't make sense to say we have self-ownership. It, it is myself, and then I own other things. But there's clearly a sense in which I do own at least aspects of my body. For example, I think most libertarians would say I have the right to sell my kidney. Well, then the kidney is severable from me in certain I, – I can get rid of my kidney, and I'm still me – but I lose part of myself, but it's, so it is me and it isn't me at the same time in a certain way. So it gets to deeper issues of identity and what that even means, but we don't need to belabor that, but it's more complicated, I think, than um, some people initially think. Yeah. I, Dan, Dan, just on that point, um, Dan Russell, a philosopher at the University of Arizona wrote what I thought was a, was a lovely uh, essay on the idea of self-ownership and, and what that means and the way it's been 
in a lot of ways misconstrued by academic philosophers um, in the uh, in the Rutledge Companion to Libertarianism that I ended it with uh, with Ben Ferguson. So I, I highly recommend that uh, that essay to anybody who's interested. And he's he's written a lot of other good stuff on that topic as well. I think he might have a book um, in the works on it um, that that people should keep their eye out for. But it's a great essay, and he's he's one of the better people to have written on that topic. I think. Okay, good to know. And for our listeners, I'm gonna I'll drop in pretty extensive show notes so for references and links and such okay so the, i like to think about property in terms of our hunter-gatherer ancestors and i don't think anyone even the most hardcore communists would deny that if a band of hunter-gatherers goes out and takes down a buffalo or whatever it is that that is their property as opposed to external groups they have some legitimate claim to that buffalo and the use of that product now you can get into the question of does he it's usually a group effort in that context. So there's usually some sense of communal ownership within the group, but nevertheless, property rights within the group of that resource, they don't, they don't necessarily have concepts, explicit concepts for that. But certainly if somebody comes in and tries to take their Buffalo, they're going to be a little disgruntled about that. So in that sense, they're defending their property. Um, but that also raises a lot of important issues that you get into because once you move from a hunter gatherer, society in which people are basically roving the countryside chasing after animals to then fencing off and close lots of land that becomes a different story because you know if you're a hunter-gatherer tribe that then decides to farm and you fence off this big plot of land then all of a sudden all the other hunter-gatherers who used to go through this valley or whatever to hunt animals or or fish the creeks or whatever it is are all of a sudden are you're locking them out and by what right do you do that and so this tends to get into a lot of the deeper issues with the legitimacy of property rights claims and how how we get to that, which again are are you know complicated issues. On the here's I I do want to I don't mind kind of nestling into the Georges an issue because it also pertains to your ideas of a basic income, which is probably at least in libertarian circles what you're best known for. But there's some interesting issues with Georgism and how he looks at things. So for one thing, it's simply not true that there, there's a given amount of land and that's it. So if you look at old and new maps of New York City, Manhattan, there's a great deal of that island that is produced. I mean, they made the land. There's whole countries that have large swaths of land that were created by building seawalls and pumping the water out. Um, I mean, my house is two stories. So whoever built my house, in effect, doubled the land area of the, at least on the footprint of the house, you build a skyscraper 80 stories tall. All of a sudden you have 80 times the amount of quote land, right? Walkable space, let's say. So there's a lot about Georgism that I, I think is too simplistic because it just doesn't look at, it, it wants to separate production from the land, but that just seems um, untenable because people are literally producing land, are literally producing usable footage um, and then you get to the issue of how much does the land actually contribute? So I think the idea is, you know, we want to tax the, the the value of the land. Well, what is that? If there's no house on my property, the value of the land is nothing, except insofar as somebody else thinks they can put a new house on. If you say you can never build a house here, all of a sudden this land is going to go for like a 20th of its quote market value. Can you be a modern Georgist or has has his have his ideas sort of been overtaken by history and the development of the industrial revolution and 
the fact that, I mean, you know, now the big, the big thing that we're talking about now is AI. These are things they, those, they cannot even conceive of back then. So in other words, production has hardly anything to do with the land you're standing on. I mean, it, it's required. You have to stand somewhere, but that's just like a minuscule part of total production. So how, how important are his ideas anyway? And how justified do you think that they are? How well do they hold up in, in the, in hindsight, do you think? Yeah, I, I think they hold up fairly well. Um, I think, which is not to say there's not some deep, uh, conceptual problems and practical problems in uh, figuring out how to implement these ideas if, uh, if one were so inclined to do so. Um, but I do, I do think the core insight holds up relatively well. Uh, and that's, that's because I think it's based on a conceptually inassailable uh, insight, which is that, uh, you know, if, if we think not in terms of land, and I think this is a big this is a big source of confusion in thinking about George, uh, which he he furthered himself by using the term land. I think the, the right way to think about this is not in terms of land per se, but in terms of natural resources, um, which includes land, but also includes uh, petroleum, right? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, mineral reserves, um, things like that. Um, even even the atmosphere, right? Even you know the the ozone layer could be thought of as as part of the you know the natural resources, things that are you know physical stuff that's out there in the world that has some relationship to human well being. Um, all of that stuff is finite, right? Uh, so like, there's only so much stuff in the in the world in the universe. Um, we can't create something out of nothing. Uh, all we can really do is reconfigure existing stuff um, in a way that makes it more or less useful to us as human beings. Um, and I think that in itself is kind of a core insight uh, of, um, of economics, right? That, um, that what productivity is about is not literally making things. Uh, it's about reconfiguring things, about making things more useful. And so this gets you away. Once you get that, right, this gets you away from what I think is this kind of physicalist fallacy that dominated economics for centuries and centuries, which is that, you know, only labor can be really productive because labor is like making things. Whereas, you know, entrepreneurs and arbitragers, right? These people aren't really productive because all they're doing is just moving stuff around. Well, once you get this insight, what you recognize is that everybody's just moving stuff around, right? Like that's all that productivity is. And so if you take water from someplace where it's abundant and you move it to someplace where it's scarce, you have like, you've created value. You've made the world a richer place um, by taking water that was relatively useless in one place and bring it to someplace where it's more useful. So I think, right, that's, that's just an important insight, generally speaking. What does it mean in terms of this kind of Georgist argument? Well, again, there's only so much stuff in the world, right? There's a, there's a finite amount of resources. Um, and so all we can do is kind of reshuffle those resources in ways that make them more or less useful. Um, and so when you, um, when you take land, right? Like you're, you're creating something you're creating. And you know, if you do something with the land, if you labor upon the land, if you till a field, for instance, or if you build a house upon a land, you're making that land more valuable. You're making it more useful. Um, but you're doing that with things that pre-existed your labor that you didn't create. 
Um, all productivity requires as inputs uh, things that are not themselves the product of human labor at some point uh, in their in their history. Um, and so I think what George wants to say about that is, um, okay, well, let's let's tax the stuff that is not the product of human labor. Um, and let's not tax the stuff that is the product of human labor. And that would be a better system, both morally and economically, than the system we have now and the system that we had when George was writing, which is where the activities of government are funded on taxes that are, that are based on human labor. It's better morally because we don't have that same moral claim over natural resources as we do over the products of our own human labor. Uh, and it's better economically because it doesn't create the kind of distorting incentives that taxes on labor uh, create, right? If you, tax, if you tax something, you get less of it. So if you're taxing things that are the product of useful human labor, you're going to get less useful human labor. Um, whereas if you institute, say, a property tax or a natural resource tax, um, that is, and this is, this is where things get conceptually tricky about how to assess these values, uh, but if you can figure out a way to do it, then you can create a tax that doesn't have the kind of distorting effects on market activity um, as a tax on income uh, or a tax on even consumption uh, would create. Uh, and so, you know, well into the 20th century, you get you get very smart economists like Milton Friedman saying, like, this is this is a good insight. Like it would be a lot better if we could uh, if we could adjust the tax system in a way that George suggested, not so much because of the moral arguments. They weren't weighing in on that, but just just on ba on the basis of the economics alone, um, it would be superior. And so, right, like maybe maybe land is less useful to us now. Maybe we don't. Uh, maybe land plays less of a role in terms of its contribution to productivity. Um, but other natural resources, like we still live in a world dominated by um, you know, you know, fossil fuels, uh, by oil, by natural gas. Uh, and we can make the same kind of Georgist arguments about those um, as we do about land. And I think um, that that's certainly still relevant uh, if, if we can figure it out. So as an aside, the popular economics writer Noah Smith claims to be sympathetic to Georgism. So I don't know if you read his materials. Yeah, yeah, I follow I follow him on Twitter. I think he's, oh, um, okay. I, 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 I get a lot out of reading him. I don't always agree but uh, with everything he says, but uh, I think he's an insightful writer. That's how I feel. So I want to push back a little harder on this idea of the contribution of, quote, natural resources. I think maybe Georgism seems a lot more plausible when we're looking at a fairly simple economy where land is obviously a major player. Like if you're farming the land, right, you drop the seed, you got to drop the seed somewhere and the land is literally contributing to your crop. But if you look at more modern advances, it doesn't seem at all obvious to me that natural resources are inherently valuable. So you talk about oil. I mean, before they figure out how to convert oil to burnable, combustible materials or synthetic materials, it was basically a nuisance. It would well up from the ground. It's sure. just like, oh, this is ruining the land. This is too bad. There's a bunch of oil here. So it's 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 not even not even useless. It's worse than useless, like right? It's a nuisance. So if you're converting a resource for something that's a nuisance, maybe you should get a subsidy because, for that instead of paying a tax on it. Um, some other examples, computer chips made out of sand. Not a lot of value in sand until you can figure out how to make computer chips or the like with them. Nitrogen from the air. There's a bunch of nitrogen in the air. 
okay, not doing anybody any good. But once you get the process that you can convert nitrogen in the air to the kind of nitrogen that you can use as fertilizer, then all of a sudden we can feed billions of more people. So you're taking, again, something with not an obvious positive value and converting it into something positive. And it seems to me that this is the far more important aspect of production and not this leaning on natural resources. It's not like we're coming to the world and the whole world is like a garden of Eden. And we're like walling off our little block of the garden of the garden of Eden. No, we come in. I mean, you draw, you start from my hometown in Denver and drive anywhere across the country. And what you will see is mile upon mile upon mile of nothing. But there's just, it just seems like in today's world, a great deal of productivity is yes. The central insight that we're all, that we're still just reshape reshuffling the aspects of the existing world is true but the actual value we're getting from it increasingly has less and less to do with the natural resource part and has to do with the cleverness with which we recombine it um, but it seems to me that that pretty deeply undercuts georgism because the fact is that in today's economy at least in you know the our part of the world western europe and so on i mean almost all of our gdp is not is related to the clever manipulation of natural resources, which would otherwise, absent that manipulation, be essentially worthless. I mean, do you do you think that that's a strong pushback, or or is it ultimately going back to okay, we can still tax it and work it out? I mean, I, I think I agree with everything you said, right? And I think what you said is is not just right, but terrifically important. Uh, so, right, what what a resource is. Um, is not itself a natural fact. Um, what a resource is, is dependent upon, uh, entirely dependent upon human ingenuity, right? Uh, so, you know, a resource is something that we can use to uh, improve human well-being. Uh, and, and what we can use to improve well, human well-being, you know, there might be strict physical limits uh, on the answers to that question, on the set of eligible answers to that question, uh, but to a large degree, um, to you know, to an extremely large degree, it's dependent upon what we can figure out, um, right? And this is why you know some economists like Julian Simon call the human mind the ultimate resource, right? Uh, you know whether whether oil is a is a pollutant or uh, one of the most important substances on Earth depends on whether we're smart enough to figure out how to use it. So that's that's absolutely right. Um, it's also true that um, ingenuity is limited by the availability of physical resources, right? So no matter how creative uh, and and um, brilliant the human mind might be, um, if you don't have physical stuff on which to operate, um, you, you know you're going to starve to death. You're going to die. Uh, so, you know, human survival requires both physical resources on which to act and um, ingenuity uh, to figure out how to use those physical resources to contribute to one's survival and flourishing. Which of those two factors plays a bigger role at any given point in time in any given cultural context is going to depend on a wide range of factors, right? So, um you know, you look at you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, which is uh, one of the wealthier countries on the face of the planet. Uh, and you ask the question, why is it one of the wealthiest countries on the face of the planet? And the answer is not 
human ingenuity, the answer is essentially brute luck. Um, their society happens to live upon a tremendous supply of uh, a resource that happened to turn out to be really valuable, uh, not because of anything anybody in that country did, but uh, because somebody else somewhere in the world figured out how to use it. Uh, so they just kind of lucked their way into uh, tremendous wealth. Um, I live in California. Some would say stole, but we can leave that aside. Sure. Right. Well, that that gets to a, a different set of issues about property rights, which we can talk about as well. But you know, just to just to continue the the theme of you know ingenuity and luck and the different factors that contribute to luck. I, you know, I live in a in a house in in California um, that I bought. Um, uh, when did I buy this house? I bought it maybe ten years ago, um, and uh, for at least a couple of years in that ten year period. Uh, I made more money just sitting in my house uh, watching the value of it appreciate than I did working 40, 50 hours a week as a professor. Um, not clear to me that there was any real merit or ingenuity on my part that that justified that uh, that property increase. It seems like I was the beneficiary of uh, a combination of natural and artificial scarcity uh, at work. Uh, natural scarcity insofar as there's only so much land in California and a lot of people want to live there. Artificial scarcity insofar as we have a lot of really terrible laws in California that limit the ways in which land can be developed uh, to provide housing for people. Um, and so uh, this is all accrued to my own uh, my own personal financial benefit. We've got a system that protects people's claims to property and natural resources that generates um, what what economists would today call you know, a tremendous amount of rent seeking, um, right? So we collect rents, we collect, uh, we collect returns that are uh, above, above the level that would be generated by a, a perfectly competitive market, uh, not because of any labor or ingenuity uh, that we have expended, but simply because we control that something that's scarce. Uh, and so I think one of the, you know, one of the things that the Georgia's paradigm is, is trying to correct is that kind of rent seeking. It's like, okay, like we want people to benefit from their labor. We want ben people to benefit from their ideas, from figuring out how to use scarce resources um, more, uh, more productively. Um, but we don't want a system in which people benefit simply because they got there first uh, and they're hanging on to something that is scarce and that other people could um, use just as, if not more productively. Um, I think, I think that's, I think that's still, still an important insight that covers a lot of housing economics. It governs a lot of natural resource economics. Here's where I think libertarianism is really useful and really good insofar as libertarians want to point out these facts of why there are housing shortages. And to me, the, okay. The idea that there's a nat, some kind of natural limit is just pales in comparison to the fact that we are artificially limiting the supply of houses. Again, I mean, you can build a one story house or a hundred story house, right? One is like, just, Let's do the math here. A hundred times more floor space, right? So right, right. when you, when we're talking about that kind of productive potential or even, I mean, you know, there's a big difference between one single lot house and like a tenplex or even a fourplex, right? I mean, that's four times, four times as much, right? That's a lot. That's a big deal. And that's what yeah. we're doing. We're, we're, a lot of cities are, a lot of 
geographic areas are limiting housing to large lots of land with a single, with one house for one household. And that's just not how a market would handle it, especially in these big areas like my area where we're having huge housing problem, housing cost problems. A lot of California, especially Bay Area, um, even New York, you know, we, you know, the, we know, we all know the problems. I mean, there's people literally moving out of Colorado, the Denver area, because they can't afford to live here anymore. Well, to me, this is where libertarians can say, <laughs> "Hey, you know, let's look at all the ways that." Property owners are restricting the building of new proper, new housing in their areas. And that is a form of rent-seeking in the bad sense. Here's what I don't like about this phrase, rent-seeking, and I understand it has a technical sense, because it seems, at least when you get to the popular usage, it combines two things, which I would consider legitimately renting out your property. I mean, if I can legitimately buy a house, I can legitimately rent it out. There's no inherent problem with that. That's a lot different from using the force of government to artificially drive up the value of my property so that I can collect a higher rent. So there's rent sinking being applied to both of those things, which I think is a problem. I wish that we had, we quote, had alighted on a better term than rent seeking to describe the political aspect of it That's as bad. distinct from what I would regard as legitimate renting of property, which you have to build. Like there, it's not obvious to me. If you go to the effort of building a house, again, the land that the house sits on is without the house worth almost nothing. So almost all the value is the, is the structure on the, on the property when it comes to housing. So when we're talking about that, it just seems like if I go to the effort to build a house, why can't I rent it out? That doesn't seem inherently unfair to me. Sure, um, sure. I want to push back on another aspect of Georgism since we're on this topic, which again, I, we've kind of settled into that, but I think it's really important. So there's some idea that um, the underlying natural resources as distinct from the productive labor, again, I doubt that we can actually make those distinctions, but that that part belongs to all mankind. So I want to also push back on the all mankind part of this, because do you literally mean every single person on the planet Earth? Uh, what happens when, you know, the trill, a, a new species comes to Earth and they're like, oh, by the way, what, what, are, what are you Earthlings doing uh, taking all the Earth for yourself? We want a basic income for our trillion people back home, right? Do you right. mean for all time? Because that's going to put you into the effect of altruism, long-termism. Right. Well, we we need to use our resources for the billions of people yet to come. That's way more important than the billions now. It's like you might have a hundred times more people. So it seems like he's getting into a lot of conundrums that you know he he wouldn't have had any reason to think of, but we've thought of since then. So so let me let me run this argument by you. Okay. Here's yeah. how I here's here's how I want to try to solve the Georges problem and the Lockean proviso problem. Going back to the hunter gatherers, there are specific people using specific land areas. Okay. Like, you can go identify them. It's not hypothetical. You can go identify them. So it would be conceivable if you're going to start fencing off properties to literally get the buy-in of all the relevant parties, right? It'd be hard to do, but we're not talking about a billion people in that context. We're talking about hundreds or maybe thousands. It seems to me that if you could get the buy-in from the existing people who actually use the property in some way, either pay them out or you all get a fair share, of, you all, all get an equal share of property or however you want to work it out that that would solve the problem. So it's at least theoretically um, solvable in that sense. Without going to, like, instead of saying all mankind, it's like the actual mankind that's actually involved with that property at the time. Do you, does that, do you buy that at all? Or does that seem um, unworkable? I mean, it's, I, it's difficult to apply retroactively, right? Since, you know, we can't, <laughs> we can't go back to those people and, and ask their, uh, uh, ask for their buy-in um, since they're, they're all dead. 
um, if I if I've understood the the hypothetical correctly, I might have. I, well, I, I, yeah, I'm just I'm just asking: Is it theoretically possible to solve yeah. the Lockean property problem with the people at hand that wouldn't that would carry out? In other words, it wouldn't generate the subsequent theoretical problems for future generations. Now, of I don't course, know. we get to the obvious we get to the obvious conundrum there that that isn't how any property that now exists developed, right? So yeah, okay. we can so even me... ask, is it worth even talking about locking property? Because, you know, that's not, there's no such thing in today's world. There's no property that's been legitimately uh, homesteaded going all the way back. So, so we started the discussion of property rights uh, and you said that a commitment to property rights is, is fairly central to the libertarian worldview uh, today. And I, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's, it's, we talk about six kind of conceptual commitments of libertarianism in our book, but we, we signal out property rights as being especially important, uh, kind of the central libertarian commitment. Uh, and certainly if you look at kind of popular libertarianism today, if you look at libertarianism on the internet, uh, property rights figure very prominently in almost every discussion of libertarianism, whether it's about you know, whether we should be able to sell our, our kidneys, whether we have a property right in our kidneys, um, whether taxes are too high um, or whether government programs should be eliminated because they violate our property rights, whether immigration uh, should be permitted or curtailed on the basis of respect for property rights. So this is this is an idea on which almost every single aspect of libertarianism hangs. And yet it's remarkably poorly understood by libertarians um, and and kind of taken for granted in, in a very naive way that, you know, we start with this set of property rights that happens to, you know, this, this moral commitment to property rights that happens to perfectly mirror the legal set of property rights that exist in the world right now. And then the only question is whether proposed government interventions either violate or respect those existing property rights. And one of the things we try to do in the book is just complicate this this picture somewhat by pointing out that, like, look, even if you think the Lockean uh, idea of self-ownership and acquisition of property through labor mixing is the right approach to take to property, philosophically speaking, it's not at all clear that that does anything to justify the property rights that we see in the world today. Uh, partly because of the kind of Georgist worries that we've spent some time talking about, which is a more theoretical challenge to the Lockean picture. But even if you put the Georgist commitment aside, the existing distribution is only just on Lockean grounds if it has come about in a way that is consistent with the Lockean theory of property rights. And it most certainly has not, right? What, what Locke says is like, look, if we start with self-ownership and then we mix our labor and then we engage in this peaceful process of trade and gift giving and gift receiving and inheritance maybe, then anything that emerges from that, you know, as Nozick puts the point, anything that emerges from a just situation by just steps is itself just. Well, look, <laughs> It's not clear that we started with a just situation, and it's perfectly damn clear that we haven't gotten to where we are by exclusively just steps, right? There's been all kinds of robbery and theft and enslavement and pernicious government policies uh, that have distorted property rights from whatever situation we started with, so that the distribution of property rights that we find ourselves with today is the product of a very complicated and messy history 
Uh, and it's not all clear, not at all clear that libertarians should point to that distribution and say, this is sacrosanct, right? This is something that government must not intrude upon, else it uh, run roughshod over libertarian property rights. So then the question is, well, what do we do? What do we do with that, right? Um, given that the property rights that um, exist today and are reflected in our legal institutions have not come about in the right way, um, how do we fix that problem? Do we try to fix that problem even? Or do we just kind of wash our hands of it and say, well, I like, can't do anything about the past. Um, might as well start being libertarian, like starting right now. Which incidentally um, is the formal position of various libertarians, including von Mises, as, as, as I understand his, his work. Yeah, I mean, a lot of libertarians have taken that position. Um, so, you know, and it, you could see why they might want to do that, right? So you say like, look, okay, so take, take just the American context for a start, right? Um, so we have, we have this distribution of property rights in the United States today, which includes property rights over, over money, property rights over land, property rights over, you know, houses and things like this, right? Where did that come from? Well, a lot of it came from perfectly reasonable transactions, right? Like I bought the house from the person who owned it before me um, by paying them the amount of money that they asked for, right? And I didn't steal from anybody or defraud anybody. Uh, I worked hard for the money that I got. So all of that looks perfectly, perfectly fine from a libertarian perspective. But if you trace the history back far enough, right? Like I live in California, like I said, um, you know, how did that land first fall into somebody's hands? Uh, there was probably some you know, shenanigans uh, that took place. Right? Somebody, you know, you know, I bought the house from somebody who bought the house from somebody who bought the house from somebody. But if you go back far enough, somebody got clubbed over the head. Uh, and so, you know, that was a long time ago. That was, you know, at least 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, maybe 200 years ago. Um, and the person who did the clubbing is dead. And the person who got clubbed is dead. So how do we fix that? Can we fix that? Should we try to fix that? Uh, it's not at all clear that we can. Uh, and so some people want to say, let's just give up on the matter. But if you do that, if you take that approach and say, let's just start being libertarians right now and kind of forget about the past, then you wind up with what look like some real injustices in the world, right? Like you wind up with a situation where African-Americans today, um, there's this in, immense wealth gap between the average African-American family and the average white family in the United States. And a big part of that wealth gap has to do with injustices that were committed in the past of the fact that Black families were essentially locked out of the American real estate market uh, during a time where appreciation in real estate was one of the major drivers of wealth increases in, in sort of interge intergenerational wealth increases in American families. Uh, and African-American families were prohibited by law from buying in the nice neighborhoods where property values were appreciating. Um, so do we just ignore that and say, well, you know, we'll start respecting your rights now. Sorry about the past, but like nothing we can do. Past is done. Um, or does that open the door for some form of rectification uh, of trying to make things right? Um, if so, what does that process of rectification look like? Given that it's almost certainly going to involve uh, any process of rectification is almost certainly going to involve a form of redistribution that takes, whether directly or indirectly, takes wealth from people who've done nothing, 
themselves individually um, to wrong uh, African-Americans uh, and giving it to people who themselves maybe haven't directly been wrong, but are kind of indirectly wronged insofar as their ancestors were harmed and now they're uh, they're less well off than they would have been in some hypothetical situation where their ancestors wouldn't have been wrong. Um, all of this gets gets really, really complicated and difficult to solve. I really appreciate it. And you have great discussion in the book about this. I recommend the book just on those grounds about the problems with libertarian conceptions of property rights. Yet at the same time, there's also a deep concern among free market types that just blowing up the existing property rights system completely is going to lead to disaster. I mean, true disaster that most people can't even imagine today yeah. because we take so much for granted. Um, well, and this gets to a real tension between two different ways of approaching libertarianism, right? So there's one, there's one approach, which we might call kind of the deontological or the natural rights approach, where libertarianism is fundamentally about respecting people's rights, treating people as one ought to treat them. Um, there's a different approach right, the kind of utilitarian or consequentialist approach to libertarianism, where libertarianism is fundamentally about, in some ways, making the world a better place, right, improving the human condition, improving human flourishing, making people happier. Um, in a lot of cases, those two approaches mesh fairly well together, right? So, um, you know, and libertarians like to talk about ways in which uh, respecting property rights, right, treating people uh, with dignity and respect also, hey, uh, happens to make the world a wealthier and happier and more productive place. But this issue of property rights, I think, and the, and the issue of specifically how we are to deal with historical injustice points to a, a situation where perhaps those two views come apart in some ways, right? So on the one hand, we want to do justice to people who have been wronged. Uh, and that means maybe... Um, engaging in a process of rectification, uh, of redistribution that, um, that does hamper productivity, um, right? That does make the world in some ways less productive, maybe even less happier uh, overall than it would have been. Uh, on the other hand, right, we might want to just say like, look, let's just, let's not too worry too much about the past. Let's just focus on moving forward and try to make the world as peaceful and productive a place for all of us um, as we can in the future. Uh, and so the question is, which of those two, and you can think about it in terms of kind of moral theories, right? Natural rights versus consequentialism. Uh, a simpler way to think about it is just about directions. Are we thinking about the past? Are we thinking about treating people correctly, making up for past injustices? Or are we thinking about looking forward, what we can do to improve the human condition, what we can do to make life better for everybody? Um, which of those two perspectives is more fundamental to the way we approach political philosophy in general or libertarianism in particular, uh, they're going to, I think, point to different answers to the question of how we should deal with historical injustice. So most of the people who think um, we shouldn't worry too much about past injustices, though, historically speaking, those tend to have been more consequentialist um, more utilitarian libertarians like von Mises, who was essentially a kind of utilitarian. Um, you know, my own uh, philosophical mentor, David Schmitz, is kind of a consequentialist who says, like, look, that's the, the stuff about 
you're trying to right the world's wrongs back to the dawn of time, that's just irrelevant, right? Like we're, we're faced with a problem now of how to make the world a good place to live in. That's the problem we should deal with. Um, I think I've got a lot of sympathetic sympathies with that, that worldview, but, um, but this idea that we can just ignore past injustices uh, does is one that doesn't sit entirely well with me, or I think with a lot of libertarians, basic moral commitments. Well, I think that a person could make a pretty strong libertarian case that the best way to move forward for the people whose who were or whose ancestors were disadvantaged, like seriously uh, due to unjust laws or unjust legal systems, that the best way for them to prosper into the future is to move ahead with a strong property rights regime that respects their property now moving forward. And gives them the best chance of moving forward. And even if other people are wealthier, perhaps due to some, partly to some past injustice, I mean, it's better for the person who has been done injustice in the past to be relatively wealthier than relatively poor, even if somebody yeah. else is even relatively wealthier. So that seems like, like uh, people on the left are not going to like that argument, but it strikes me as actually yeah. fairly plausible. But then I wanted to ask you about this idea of. Because we know we can we can actually point to people who are alive today whose ancestors clearly suffered profound injustice, right? And I mean this is not this is not a theoretical thing. I mean this is it's pretty evident that they're going back not too far is some pretty profound injustices. I mean decades, not centuries. Yeah. So, but I'm wondering if those kinds of concerns on your premises would better justify like a one-time or a short-term um, process of reparations, trying as carefully as you can to target those toward the people who actually are the present victims of past injustice, as opposed to a long-term forever program of a basic income. Because it seems like if you could, I mean, you can never do it perfectly, of course, but if you could somehow sort of have sort of a close approximation to rectifying past injustices, couldn't we then say, okay, now we're going to have a libertarian part, uh, society moving forward? Why is that? It doesn't strike, seem obvious why you wouldn't go with that rather than a basic income. Yeah, so I'm not sure that I, – I, I don't think I would say that a basic income is justified on grounds of reparation primarily. Um, I mean I think that's that's one of the arguments that could be remarkable in support of a basic income. I don't think it's the strongest one, and I think it is – vulnerable to precisely the question you ask, which is, you know, why, why do we need this kind of program in perpetuity um, to rectify past injustices? Why not, why not use a shorter term or maybe even a one-time uh, program instead? Um, as for, as for whether we could make rectification by means of a one-time payment. Um, or say I like think, 20 years or something, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, well, I I think maybe, right? I mean, it it depends. It's not um it depends on what works, right? So, you know, the the point of rectification is to make the victim whole, right? Uh to to put the victim of injustice in as close to the same place uh in terms of well-being or opportunities or some kind of metric in that neighborhood. Uh, as they would have been had the injustice not been committed. Um, and I think for some kinds of injustice, a simple one-time payment uh, might be sufficient, right? So, I mean, look, look, if I, 
if I steal something from you, if I steal your TV, uh, then the way to make reparation for that is just uh, make me give the TV back and maybe some some extra cash for your time and inconvenience. Um, for other other kinds of injustice, uh, for you know, for longer term, more systemic forms of injustice. It's not obvious to me that um, that a simple one-time payment will work, right? That it that it would suffice to put the vac to make the victim whole. Uh, so if you know if what I've done, if what we have done as a country to uh, African Americans is to you know through a variety of policies. Uh, to you know, to destroy the structure of the African American family, right? To um, to uh, uh, to kind of retard the the progress that African Americans have made in terms of educational achievements um, by by blocking their access to um, you know high quality schooling. Um, if you know, and so on and so forth. It, it's, if we've done these kind of systematic systemic injustices. And then we say, well, oh, sorry about that. Here's $50,000 cash. Um, I don't know that that's going to fix the problem, right? Um, you know, the, the injustices, not all injustices are of the sort that can be fixed by a one-time payment. Um, maybe, maybe some kind of affirmative action would be a better fix. I'm not, I'm not arguing that affirmative action is all things considered morally justifiable, but right, targeting targeting some specific aspect of the uh, of a social problem right like access to education or access to health care or family structure um, through some more narrowly targeted um, social program might might be a more effective means of reparation than a cash transfer um, and it might be the kind of thing that requires time for it to work effectively uh, so that we can't just sort of do it and be done with it and then move on to our perfect libertarian society. Like it, it might take some work to fix the damage that we've done. Uh, it might take some time. One thing I wanted to ask you about is what you think of systemic racism as a concept. So to my mind, the two most obvious candidates for what would be systemic racism are the drug war and more broadly criminal justice problems. I mean, just, you know, we're going to enforce the laws only against black people, not against white people in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, instantly an aside for readers, uh, for listeners, I was once a Coke fellow. And what I, what I worked on during that time is the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. And that was kind of my first real wake up call. It's like, wow, the American criminal justice system is really screwed up in some really deep and fundamental ways. And so that was impactful for me, ironically to people on the left coming with, with the help of some Coke dollars. Right. Um, when it comes to like affirmative action, I, I have a seven-year-old, so I'm pretty interested in, edu in education. And it seems like in terms of say college admittance, Affirmative action is not at the level of college is not where we need to be looking. We need to be looking at educating the young so that they are highly competent by the time they get to the college age. And so when you look at just how bad, like, so the second thing in, in addition to the drug war that I would say are, is a great candidate for systemic racism is the poor quality of public education, especially for people who are less well off, especially for minorities. 
If you're a rich white kid in the suburbs, your public school is probably fine. If it's not, your parents can buy you tutoring or whatever you need. But there's a lot of kids who are, you, I would just say, they're not being educated. They're being warehoused. They're not being educated. So to me, that's like, okay. Then I start to think that this idea of systemic racism has some legitimacy. So what do you think about the general topic and some of the specifics? Yeah, um, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think uh, I think there's certainly something legitimate to the concept of systemic racism. Uh, I think it's something that um, libertarians sometimes struggle to come to terms with. Um, we talk about race in the book, um, the chapter on the on the subject, uh, and we we frame that discussion in terms of the libertarian commitment to individualism, which in some ways uh, made libertarians, especially, I think, progressive when it came to issues of race. We were in some ways ahead of the curve on, on issues of race um, insofar as libertarians believe that we should judge people as individuals, we should treat people as individuals, that rights are a concept that apply to individuals and not to groups, um, whether they be nationalities or races or sexes. Uh, and so libertarians were among the, you know, the most vocal critics of um, racist imperialism in the 19th century. Uh, they were among the most vocal critics of American slavery. Uh, many, many of the earliest American libertarians were um, quite uh, passionately involved in the abolitionist movement in the United States. Um, libertarians were at the forefront of battles against uh, sexism as well. Uh, there's a, there's a, a tremendous history of, of libertarian feminism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I think this libertarian commitment to individualism made us kind of keenly aware of policies that um, denied rights to individuals on the basis of their group membership. Um, but it also, uh, it also makes us as libertarians somewhat blind to ways in which individuals might be systematically disadvantaged by their group membership in a way that isn't immediately reducible to individual acts of racism right so so our individualism both <laughs> heightens us to a kind of obvious form of racism and sexism and it blinds us to more subtle more systematic forms of racism and sexism um and so that i think is is why libertarians sometimes struggle with the concept of structural racism right like they have no problem talking about racist treatment um by one individual towards another individual but the idea that systems can be racist or that systems can be sexist is something that libertarians kind of struggle with or or uh refuse to believe because libertarians tend to think things like well only individuals exist right systems don't exist groups don't exist nations don't exist it's only individuals all the way down and i think there's a there's an insight to that kind of individualism but it it only goes it only goes so far uh so i think the kind of policies that you point to right the drug war um um uh, uh, uh 
you mentioned uh, criminal justice uh, issues. Education. I would add, I would add housing policy. Um, right. To Definitely that, right? housing policy. It's, yeah, sure. it's tied in with the educational issue, right? So why is it that some people are blocked mm. from mm. high quality schooling? It's because schooling in the United States is geographically based. Uh, you know, the kind of public school that you have access to depends on what kind of neighborhood you live in, which means that if you're systematically excluded from the better neighborhoods, you're also systematically excluded from the better schools. That is a great um, point. I'm glad you, ra you raised that. Housing policy is everything. I've been uh, spending a lot of time over the last couple of years reading up on uh, on YIMBYism. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things that the YIMBYs have convinced me of is that like almost any social problem you can identify uh, can be linked in fairly direct terms with housing policy uh, one way or another. Well, just as as some background, so in Colorado, of course, with Denver and being a, people like to move here, we're having huge problem with housing costs. But part of the, and also the Democrats control our legislature completely. So, but a lot of people on the progressive side are, look at housing costs and are like, oh my goodness, we need to more tightly regulate people who rent properties we need to put in rent control. Actually, there's literally a push to put it through rent control or allow – it would allow cities yeah. to impose rent controls basically to yeah. impose all kinds of new restrictions on uh, – like you, you can't make it much harder to evict people even after your rental agreement is over, things like that. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at that stuff sort of with horror. It's like I thought we – I mean surely if you can get an issue right on economic liberty grounds, it's rent control. But on the other side, our sort of – sort of libertarian governor Jared Polis is pushing a measure that would pretty seriously restrict cities' ability to restrict use of property. In other words, it would open up a lot more zoning regulation in terms of being able to build more housing. You can develop a property that would house more people rather than fewer. So these are very much um, live issues in many parts of the country, certainly where I live. I guess we could go more broadly to social justice if you wanted to talk about that. To me, those are very tightly linked. So I don't know if you have anything additional you want to add. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I think I think you're right. The social justice stuff does uh, does tie in very nicely to the questions about um, systemic racism. But um, I mean, it's I think just to kind of reiterate the point about you know how individuals or how individualists. Uh, like libertarians should think about about these concepts that that involve groups. Um, you know, I think you know the insight the insight of individualism, and there actually there's not just one; there are many, right? Like when we call the book the individualists, and so far as you know, we think this is this is one of the the core identifying features of libertarianism, uh, and part of it's a moral commitment, right? The idea that individuals have rights, um, and that only individuals have rights. Um, part of it's a kind of methodological approach, right? We think that if we want to understand the world, uh, we think about the world in terms of individuals and not in terms of groups, right? So, um, you know, this this insight is applied in public choice economics, where we think like, you know, okay, it's it's a lot more useful to talk about how how and why individual members of Congress vote the way they did than it is to talk about how Congress acted, or how even worse, the United States acted. Um, if we think about the individuals and the incentives that operate on those individuals, we'll get a much clearer picture of the incentive structures that guide public policy than we do if we think about things in terms of groups. That's all that's all really important stuff and stuff that I think is is very insightful and, and helpful in, in understanding the world. But it, like a lot of things, um, it can be taken too far um, and it can be taken too far if 
we say what a lot of libertarians say, which is that, you know, only individuals exist, groups don't exist. Well, no, they, they do. <laughs> groups do exist and groups um, matter, um, sociologically speaking, uh, in terms of the way the way the world works, um, the way that individuals understand themselves, the way that ind individuals understand other individuals around them uh, is mediated by by group identities um, and the the distribution of resources in the world today, the the inequalities that we see in the world are also very much mediated by groups. And if you have this individualistic framework that simply blinds you to the reality of those groups, you're going to miss a lot of what concerns ordinary people um, when they see the ways, you know, when they see things like the racial wealth gap, right? Or the, you know, the gender pay gap, um, where they see inequalities that seem to map fairly well onto these socially salient groups um, in order to address those. And maybe, and, and when I say address those, I don't mean, you know, automatically agree with whatever the progressive solution to them is, because I think in a lot of cases that progressive solution is, is heavily flawed. I think there are good criticisms of affirmative action. I think the idea of the gender pay gap is itself fairly problematic. Um, but I think you, you, in order to get to that point where you can start talking about whether these diagnoses are uh, or prescriptions are correct or incorrect, you, you have to see the groups. You have to see the problem to begin with. And a lot of libertarians, I think, don't don't quite make it that far. So you've got to engage with the questions of social justice um, you know, from your distinct libertarian perspective. Um, but that means recognizing the the reality of a groups in in a way that some libertarians um, do not. I'm totally sympathetic with your idea that a certain way of looking at individualism can blind you to things that affect people as members of groups. But I want to make a quick push for an idea of a refined individualism in terms of things like systemic racism. So when I talk about – I'm very comfortable talking about systemic racism. If I can talk to – there is a particular government policy. It was passed by this group of lawmakers. Here's been the effects. Or I can talk to – like racism has been obviously widespread in our country's history. But you can still point to individuals who hold specific attitudes, and these individuals over here – articulate totally different attitudes and push back against the racism, right? So there's still an underlying individualism in the sense that I can point to real people who are doing or saying or expressing real things or even thinking in terms of if they're expressing those thoughts. My worry, and I think a lot of people worry about how some people on the progressive side want to use terms like systemic racism, it becomes something that is always there, but you can never really identify it. And you can it can never go away. If you can't point to an actual specific problem, right? Oh, it's just like, oh, it's systemic racism. And then, you know, you get the criticisms. Is systemic racism in the room with you now? Um, because it's like, if I don't know what it is and we can't fix it, then you get the, the concern that you're telling young children of color that they're just oppressed and there's nothing they can do about it. And, you know, the white people are the oppressors or whatever, and you're the oppressed and too bad. So sad. And that just to me strikes me as such a pessimistic and unhelpful way to approach the world. So I still want to have this underlying, I will call it a sort of individualism. And then I can point to actual people doing actual things that we can fix. <laughs> do you share that? Do you share these concerns or do you think I'm um, looking for problems where they don't exist? 
No, 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 no. I think it's it's a term that gets used uh, um, in a careless and and sloppy way uh, in a lot of public discourse, uh, and and by people who should know better than to use terms in a careless and sloppy way, right? Like, I mean, it's it's one thing for people on Twitter to be uh, using terms kind of carelessly. It's another thing when kind of leading scholars in the field um, use terms in a, in, a, in a careless and sloppy way. And I think uh, that is often the case in uh, academic discussions, even of systematic racism, as terms are, are not clearly defined, uh, nor, are, um, nor are the conditions uh, specified under which systematic racism might be rectified, right? If it's a problem, um, you know, then hopefully we would want to be able to identify uh, conditions under which the problem could be corrected. Otherwise, it looks less like a, a social problem than a kind of met, brute metaphysical fact of the universe, right? Um, so, um, so I agree with you uh, about that. Um, and and I, I think, you know, if the kind of reformed individualism that you suggest sounds sounds correct to me. We want to be able to identify actions or policies um, that uh, are, are um, you know, sort of leading us to to make the claim that uh, that racism or systematic racism exists. Uh, whether those are always going to be kind of neatly reducible to the actions of individuals uh, or not is another question i guess right so um you know one of the one of the insights of libertarian social theory is that various phenomena can emerge um uh from from social actions in a way that is unanticipated and unintended um and usually when libertarians talk about this idea this idea of spontaneous order we talk about it uh, to refer to good things, things that we like, right? So, so a coordinated market activity can emerge, right? Or market equilibrium can emerge out of individuals simply pursuing their own self-interest, none of whom are intending to create a market equilibrium or having idea any idea what a market equilibrium might look like. I think one of the one of the more sophisticated ways of understanding systematic racism is a kind of negative analog of that, right? It's a kind of negative spontaneous order where you have individuals, none of whom might be acting in what we would identify as a directly racist way. And yet the unanticipated and unintended consequence of their action is a racist distribution. And the, the kind of classic example of this is uh, Schelling's model of residential discrimination, where you have neighborhoods where um, you know they're populated by a mixture of white and black families, and if you sign, if you assign to the white families even a slight preference uh, to live next door to other white families, uh, you know nothing on the level of like you know this person's a Klansman who wants uh, African Americans deported or anything, but just a slight preference to live uh, among among other white families, and you you run the model. Um, Right where each individual, if that if there's you know you, you cross a certain threshold where there's too many black neighbors and the white neighbors leave and they move to a different neighborhood, you wind up fairly soon with highly segregated uh, communities. Uh, and you can actually go to websites where you can kind of run this this uh, uh, simulation of a of a shelling approach, and you and you see how you start with fairly integrated neighborhoods and it they become highly segregated over time. Uh, I think that's a a really interesting way for libertarians to think about what systematic racism might mean. Um, 
right? You know, you have individuals acting according to non-racist motives, but you you wind up with a situation that most people would describe as highly racially stratified, or maybe even as a racist kind of distribution of stuff, right? Whatever the stuff might be in a in a particular model. I guess something else we should probably talk about. I mean, we libertarians at some point is sort of the Nick Christakis idea of social network effects and how we can be blinded to the ways that we're being influenced and influencing others. Cause surely things like that played into the racist history of many pockets of America. And indeed, you know, there's still, we still have racist, racist uh, expressions in this, in this country. It's not hard to find even in our, our quote own movement. Um, yeah, sadly. Well, I wanted to hit you on another point aspect of your basic income idea. I want to throw some Brian Kaplan at you. Okay. So arguably from a libertarian perspective, the single most important and pressing social justice issue is the, are the profound limitations on immigration. And the, so correspondingly, the most important thing we could be doing as libertarians is try to open up immigration as much as we can. I mean, we're obviously for practical reasons, not going to get anything like open borders in the near future, but you know, we make it really hard in this country, even for extremely talented, the most talented people in the world have a hard time coming here, which is just like suicidal at the national policy level, just as, as a like self-interest perspective. Right. But if you look at this, I mean, as bad off as some disadvantaged people are in our country, I mean, there's a lot of people far worse off if you go to other countries because of how dysfunctional their own governments are. Um, other other issues like our drug war policy spilling over to cartel violence in many countries south of our border. So arguably, the most important thing we could do is push for immigration reform so that people can move from really terrible conditions to radically better conditions. and you know, radically expand their productivity, these kinds of things. Now, how does that tie into basic income? Arguably, the basic income makes that strategy less likely because then people paying into the basic income certainly aren't going to want to subsidize people, new people coming to the country. Now you could say, oh, well, we're not going to give them the basic income, but then are they paying into our tax system for our basic income? So how do you, do you, do you see immigration reform as, standing alongside sort of like a welfare reform or in conflict, or how do you view those issues? And how do you view generally the issue, the relative importance of immigration reform? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, and I would tend to agree with, with Brian on, uh, on this point or, or with you channeling, channeling Brian. I, uh, I think immigration reform is, is one of the most important issues uh, facing uh Facing us today, uh, as 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 people, uh, but as as libertarians especially, um, and it's it's one of I think those great issues where both the deontological and the consequentialist perspectives line up really really neatly. Um, insofar as right, this is this is a human rights issue. This is just an issue of treating people with respect, uh, of not uh, coercing people, not initiating aggression. Uh, against individuals. And uh, it's also an issue um, 
that uh, has the potential to make a tremendous difference in terms of human well-being and flourishing and economic growth uh, moving forward. Uh, and, and both of those things point in the same direction. I think an open an open society um, would be one that is both more moral and uh, uh, more productive um, than than a relatively closed society. How does that uh, relate to the issue of the basic income? Uh, so you point to a worry, which is that if we have a basic income, this is going to make um, people less open to accepting uh, new immigrants into their society. Um, that is, that's possible. Um, we do see, uh, if we look at uh, data uh, from around the world, we see that there does seem to be a correlation between um, uh, the, the, the generosity of a welfare state um, and, uh, and people's openness to new uh, immigration. Uh, and it's a, it's a negative correlation, right? So the, uh, the more generous the welfare state is, uh, the less open people are to, uh, to, to migration. Uh, the United States, for instance, has a much less generous uh, welfare state than, say, um, you know, the Nordic countries like Finland or Denmark. Um, but we also accept a, a much larger number, uh, absolute number and proportion of immigrants uh, and into our country than, than they do into theirs. Um, so that's, that's an issue. Uh, I think that's, that's quite important. Um, I'm less sure, uh, whether it's an issue that's specific to the basic income as opposed to welfare programs in general, right? So, um, you know, we have, we have welfare programs in the United States right now, um, you know, they're, they're not a basic income, but we have other kinds of programs. We have, uh, you know, temporary assistance to needy families. We have, um, uh, uh, food stamps, uh, uh, in the United States, we have Medicaid, uh, in the United States, right? So we have programs that redistribute income. Uh, if we were to just hypothetically, right? Suppose if we were to scrap all those welfare programs and simply replace them with a basic income, uh, that, had the same level of overall expenditures, right? So we didn't increase the overall cost of the welfare state. We just changed its form. Um, would that lead to a net increase in resistance to immigration? I'm not sure, um, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe people, maybe there's something special about a basic income that makes people more resistant to a um, to immigration than other forms of welfare. Um, but I don't think we have any data to support that conclusion. Um, so it's it's kind of just speculation. Um, if if it did turn out to be the case, I think that would be that would be an important issue to take account of um, in in thinking about the justifiability of a basic income. Given given that I think um, you, you know you asked the question of priorities, right? Given that I think immigration probably is more and a more important issue from the perspective of human welfare and uh, from the perspective of morality than domestic welfare policy. Uh, in other words, I think like just look at it, looking at it in terms of human welfare. Um, I think the improvements in welfare that we produce by allowing people to move from poor countries to the United States is much, much, much greater than any improvement that we'll get from uh, even a very well-designed domestic social welfare program. 
Um, and it's it's generational, right? So I mean, immigrants move here, they're almost immediately better off in terms of their access to um, labor markets, uh, in terms of their access to you know all the positive externalities that an economy like the United States generates, and then their children are even more better off. Um, so this is a, a benefit that just keeps compounding uh, over time. Um, and I don't I don't think you see that same kind of benefit from any domestic welfare program, even even a basic income that I would think is very good. So if if the two really did turn out to be in kind of fundamental tension, uh, that that would give me significant pause in advocating a basic income. But I'm but I'm not sure that uh, we have any more reason to be concerned about a basic income than we do about other forms of, of welfare. That was a great answer. Well, to me, I'm not sure about the arguments, about your arguments of the Lockean proviso. And I'm not sure about sort of the utilitarian moral arguments for a basic income. But what seems pretty clear to me is that you could get widespread agreement that a basic income as a replacement for existing welfare programs could be really, really beneficial. Again, if not as beneficial as open immigration policy, still like a, a really big improvement because, I mean, I don't even know what fraction of the welfare of welfare spending is just eaten up in bureaucracy. It's not trivial. Um, so let's get that money to where it's actually doing some good and reduce the bureaucracy. And you say that's not a, it's not a radical proposal in the sense of it's not theoretically radical, but it's radical in the sense that it would be pretty far reaching. I mean, I would want to put not only like public housing in that basket, you know, let's stop building public housing and just give people money. Yeah, sure. Um, I would put education in that basket. Privatizing education is a radical position. If right. you, if you roll that, if you could roll that into the basic income issue as well, why do we need government doing schools? Let's just give people money and then they can buy whatever education they want. Now that's yeah, so it's, hard, it's that's sort of taking the, sell. taking the school voucher program just sort of one step further, right? So a school voucher is essentially like cash that you can only spend on one kind of thing, right? Um, whereas if you fold that over to a basic income, it's cash that you can spend on any kind of thing. Uh, and, and there might be good reasons in some cases for wanting to restrict um, people's purchase to to one sort of thing, right? Like you might think um, there's a kind of principal agent problem involved in in between parents and their children in some cases, right? So if you give money to the parents and hope that they spend it on their kids' education, maybe they will, maybe they won't. And, you know, good parents will, bad parents might not. Um, whereas if you mandate that the, the voucher can only be used on education, um, then, then perhaps that helps, uh, ensure that you'll, you'll get the outcome that you're looking for. I'm not sure. Um, but, but that's, well, uh, if, even if you have these carve outs within a basic income, like this money right. is for such and such goal, that's such a, it seems like such a better and less bureaucratic system to me that, you know, if I could push that button, that's a button I push, yeah. even if I'm not sure about the welfare state in general, like, we yeah. a, a radically we could have a relatively much better or relatively worse welfare system and ours seems and the, bu bad. the bureaucracy issue is very real um the, the main issue though is not cost uh with bureaucracy so i mean it's there is a cost involved in bureaucratic administration of the you know 100 plus welfare systems we have uh at the federal and state levels um but uh but the cost is drops in the bucket compared to, you know, the overall, the overall amount of money that we spend on programs like, you know, Medicare, for instance. Um, what the real issue, though, is um, just the cumbersomeness of of the bureaucracy. Uh, well, especially... Yeah, the costs are also in getting the, figuring out the system, getting the benefits, 
I mean, all the time you read stories about like, oh, people don't even know about this program, so they're not signing up for it because it's just Yeah, the take-up rate. The take-up rate on a lot of these programs is remarkably low. And having spent some time looking at these programs and what it takes to collect the benefits to which you're legally entitled, this is not terribly surprising to me anymore, right? I mean, there's... You know, there's a bunch of different programs. Each program you have, you want to derive benefits from, you have to often apply to separately, uh, which means you have a bunch of paperwork that you have to fill out. And the paperwork is about as easy to fill out as your federal taxes. Um, so, you know, if you've got it, I've, I've filled out this paperwork um, um, to see what it's like. And uh, it's not easy for me. And, and I'm, you know, got a college degree, I've got a PhD uh, it, this is not super easy paperwork to fill out. So for somebody who doesn't have that kind of educational background, um, I, I imagine it's much more challenging. You have to make the time to go to these offices, right. And stand in line and wait, which if you're, you know, working at the kind of inflexible jobs that a lot of poor individuals have to work at, that can be very hard to do. Um, you know, how do you get from place to place A to place B? You, you have a car, do you need to take public transit, right? It's just, it's a lot of work uh, to collect these benefits. Um, and it's it's not accidental. I mean, I think a lot of these programs were made difficult to qualify for precisely in the hopes that uh, people wouldn't collect the benefits to which they're entitled. Um, but uh, but I think I think a more transparent, less cumbersome welfare system would be would be better um, on, on many grounds, you know, one of which is cost, but a lot of it is just making it easier for people to get the help that we're purportedly trying to give them. Well, I've been a slow convert, but I'm more and more starting to see your the benefits of what you're proposing. I've got well, I've got another book coming out in uh, in June um on on the basic income guarantee uh called uh, universal basic income what everyone needs to know and it's a it's a kind of question and answer book. I think there's like 60 or 70 questions about the basic income that we ask and then try to provide brief answers to. I, I wrote this with a a colleague of mine, Miranda Fleischer, who's a, a professor of tax law. Uh, so, uh, so you know, maybe we'll talk again in a, in a couple of months about basic income after you've had a chance to look at that, and we'll see if we've finally pushed you over the fence. And on that topic, don't you have another book also coming out or in contract? Uh, there's a there's a collection of essays on exploitation that'll be uh, coming out uh, probably 2024. Do you um, contribute to that, or you're the you're only an editor? Uh, I don't think I have an essay in that. I'm trying to keep <laughs> trying to keep track of uh, of what I've got going on. But no, I think I, I wrote the co wrote the introduction to that uh, that book with Benjamin Ferguson. Um, but uh, but I didn't write an essay. But there's a lot of really great essays in there, including one on uh, left libertarian exploitation theory from uh, my good friend uh, Roderick Long, um, who uh, who's a terrific scholar um, of, of libertarian thought uh, and just a terrific scholar more generally. So. Um, recommend that to y'all. Well, we've been going on a fair while here. So there's a whole lot in your book that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to, but that's okay. I guess I thought what we did get to was pretty interesting and pretty fundamental. So we did not get to Roderick Long and the left libertarians. We did not talk about Joseph Dijak, the first (laughs) self-identified libertarian who most libertarians would not regard as libertarian. And I don't think I would either. Uh, We did not talk about the 1850s with Bastiat, Herbert Spencer, Gustave de Molinari. Uh, what else do we not talk about? 
We threw a whole we, bunch we, of stuff we, in we that didn't book. Talk, <laughs> we didn't even talk about what most American libertarians regard as libertarianism in terms of the ideas of, we, we mentioned Nozick, we mentioned Mises, we mentioned Hayek, we mentioned Rothbard. I guess we mentioned the big players. We, I think we mentioned Ayn Rand, but not extensively. I was going to ask you if Ayn Rand's a libertarian, even though she says she's not. So I'm just- I think the, the answer to that question is unambiguously yes. Uh, unless yeah. you ask any advocate of Rand's ideas, then it's unambiguously yeah. no. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, this is okay because the goal here is not just to recapitulate the contents of the book. The goal is to talk for, well, for me, it was to try to push you on some of the controversial issues and see what you came up with. But people who are interested in these topics, I mean, look, it's a long, it's a 400 page book, 300 pages plus a hundred pages of notes roughly. So we couldn't have covered the whole thing anyway. There's a whole lot in there. It's super interesting, but it's also, I really appreciate this for an academic book. Yes, it has some length. Yes, it has like some thousands of endnotes, but it's very, very readable. And it's not just written in this turgid academic style that is like makes you want to beat your head against the wall. It's very pleasant to read. It's, oh, I would even you. say fun, at least if you're interested in the topic. So I really appreciate your efforts to make it accessible and your editors. So that's nice. And I'll just leave for the listener, you know, if you want, a, if you want. I think this is, I can't think of a better introduction to libertarian, the libertarian history and libertarian ideas in this book. Um, maybe there's one, if not, this is certainly one of the top few. So I, I'm just going to go ahead and call it the best. So if you want to know about these ideas, I won't stop you. <laughs> um, pick up this book and read it. I found it really enlightening. Also for people who think that they hate libertarians and libertarianism, I think might find a lot in this book that gives them pause, maybe gives them points of agreement, maybe some common ground. Um, we'll see. Anyway, I hope it reaches a wide, a wide audience, but I think we're going to wrap it up at that point, if, if that's okay with you. Um, yeah, sure. I, I, I really appreciate those words. Ari. That, that means a lot to me. It's uh, uh, very, very kind of you. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad the writing uh, came off as, as accessible and readable. That's certainly what we were trying for in this book. Um, you know, it's, it would be, we want to take the conversation beyond the ivory tower because we think there's a lot of people out there who are interested in, in libertarianism, either because they, they like it a lot or they, or they think they hate it. Um, and, and we want to, we want to communicate to those people and say, like, I, mean, I think the, if there's one message to the book, um, and kind of one overriding idea is that there's a lot more to libertarianism than most people think. Uh, so whether you like it or you hate it, um, we hope that you'll find some things in here to surprise you, intrigue you, um, and things that you'll you'll want to talk about. And it's certainly, if this conversation is any metric, it certainly sparked a good conversation here. So that uh, that makes me very happy. So thank you, thank you so much for uh, for bringing me on here. Okay, well, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll talk in the future. Absolutely, I look forward to it. This has been the Self and Society podcast. For more, see Self and Society at Substack.